Yeah, thank you. Um, we should start the talk by acknowledging the Eora people. Uh, the talk's going to actually be about the Eora people tonight and their fight for their land, this land here. Eora is actually a word that was just a self-referential word for people, sort of at the time, rather than a formal tribal sort of grouping or whatever, but it did was a u- word that was used by Aboriginal people to refer to themselves and, you know, and, 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 and other people that, that are around them uh, here in, in this land here, and still used, still used today, obviously. Um, I wanted to just start by looking back at the, when the G20 protest, it was G20 protest, there were protests, they were led by Aboriginal people, that's an important, <laughs> an important thing to say, but when the G20 meeting uh, was actually happening, uh, Tony Abbott hosted a bunch of the world leaders here in Sydney um, and he introduced his visitors, the visitors there to his particular narrative of what he called the settlement of Sydney, what we'd call the invasion, we call it Invasion Day on the 26th of January. Um, and did it in his own way, you know, his beautiful way, managing to erase tens of thousands of years of Aboriginal occupation in a few short sentences. He said at the time, as we look around this glorious city and as we see the extraordinary development, it's hard to think that back in 1788 it was nothing but bush. The marines and convicts and the sailors that straggled off those 12 ships just a few hundred yards from where we are now must have thought they'd come almost to the moon. Um, And you can see from these statements, it actually builds on a really important theme uh, for Tony Abbott, um, who a few months earlier had, had said at another function, um, our country owes its existence to a form of foreign investment by the British government in the then unsettled, or, or um, scarcely settled, Great South Land, uh, was, was how we put it at the time, referring to the colonisation of Australia. And this concept of terra nullius, the idea that Australia was an empty land, that there was nothing here, or that maybe if Aboriginal people were here, they weren't really human beings, they didn't really have a social system or a connection to the land that was worth acknowledging or recognising, this actually remains foundational for the operation of Australian capitalism. It was, a, it was a myth and an ideological concept that was used to justify the brutal genocide that was undertaken to incorporate Aboriginal lands into the settler economy and to appropriate the fruits of thousands of years of Aboriginal work shaping the landscape. It's not just the land that was stolen, it was the landscape that was stolen. It was very much, for, in many areas of Australia, an Aboriginal creation, uh, that landscape, and, and we'll talk, talk about that to some extent. That was stolen. Aboriginal labour was stolen as well as land. And it continues to form, terra nullius continues to form, the legal basis for the continued exploitation of these lands. I mean, people often think that native title overturned terra nullius. It did nothing of the sort, actually. The ruling in 1991 in the the court said that any land that had been taken already by the capitalist economy was taken. There was no Aboriginal interest recognised in it whatsoever. For those few lands on the outskirts of colonial settlement where Aboriginal people could prove that despite the genocidal onslaught that they'd undergone, they'd managed to maintain a connection, you know, an active cultural connection over the 227 years since colonisation, we might recognise some small little thing called native title but if we want to build a mine, we'll build it anyway. If we want to have a farm, we're going to do it anyway. You don't actually have any rights to that land at all. So terra nullius is alive and well. Terra nullius is foundational uh, for, for the operation of, of, Australian, of Australian capitalism. Um, but just returning to Abbott's comments, in, in reality, you know, the, the leading figures, he said at the time, you know, they must have thought they'd come to the moon. 
But the leading figures of the military dictatorship, the British military dictatorship that was established in Sydney in 1788, they didn't actually think they'd come almost to the moon, if you listen to what they said, when they first sailed into, into Sydney Cove. The leading military sur surgeon, Worgan, who was on the First Fleet, he said at the time that Port Jackson suggested the imagination ideas of luxuriant vegetations and rural scenery. Now and then a pleasant and chequered glade opens to your view, or a soft, vivid, green, shady lawn attracts your eye. Another surgeon, Arthur Bowes-Smith, argued that the finest terrors, lawns and grottos in this land cannot excel in beauty those who nature now presented to our view. <clears throat> so they saw lovely meadows, they saw lovely grottos, they saw an incredibly inviting landscape, nothing to do with the moon. And that this landscape itself, as I argued before, was actually had been fundamentally shaped by Aboriginal labour over, over a very, very long period of time. Uh, the land management, particularly the use of fire, had developed a patchwork of open spaces which would allow for comfortable human occupation in large groups. There were meadows which were, which were purposefully maintained to attract game for hunting. There were riverside areas that were used to cultivate yams on, on, on a reasonably large scale. There was a dense network of established tracks all through the area that's now known as Sydney. Most of these tracks were, became the foundations for the roads that now the city of Sydney stands on, including King Street, Newtown, which was a major Aboriginal thoroughfare moving between Port Jackson and, and, and down to and down to what's what's known as what's known as Bot Botany Bay, and the fresh water sources had been very very diligently maintained. Access to those fresh water sources and, and and areas around them. The racist military leaders that actually came in and established the settlement of Sydney, they didn't know or conceive uh, too racist to see that this had actually you know was the result of a result of Aboriginal land management. But they had no hesitation whatsoever in taking full advantage of the inviting landscape. Livestock was put immediately to pasture on the carefully managed grasslands which we now actually know as the Botanic Gardens. That was the first sort of grazing area that, that, that was in Sydney. All the lovely camping areas that had been maintained around the tank stream uh, were used and usurped for the, usurped for the settlement and, the, and both King Street and Botany Road, the thoroughfares down to, down to Botany Bay, were used for intercourse with the French who had come only a few days after the first fleet came into Botany Bay. The French had, the French had set a party down there. They opened intercourse with the French Using those and, and trade with the French using those using those pathways, expeditions up to the head of the river, um, lands of the Barramatigal, now known as Parramatta. Um, they saw extensive parkland, what they called parkland, pasture lands, with far better soil quality than the, than the sandy soil in Sydney. Worgan, that surgeon, he said, we've met with a great extent of park-like park country, the soil apparently fitted to produce any kind of grain and clothed with the most luxurious grass. But while this landscape itself was an incredibly inviting one and was actually perfect for human habitation and perfect for you know, the, the settlers and for the settlement that they wanted to set up, the nascent colony had a problem. <laughs> it's a problem that had come to be known in Australian history as the Aboriginal problem. The people that actually were there and whose country it was and who'd looked after it for so long didn't just go away, didn't just disappear and allow people to usurp. They put up a very, very fierce resistance. And the response to the Aboriginal problem, to the human occupation of the land, you know, was foundational for actually shaping, you know, the, the settlement, the settlement of Sydney and the institutions of the state that were set up, that were set up here in Sydney. And it's some of that resistance, the dynamic of that resistance, that we're going to look at for the for the remainder of this talk. 
to understand the actual colonisation of Sydney, I think it's important to look at some of the contradictions that existed within the system of capitalism that was developing in Britain at the time. It was really those, those contradictions which drove, which drove you know, dispatching these ships to such a faraway cove you know, on, the, on the other side of the world. The first was the social contradictions which had actually posed by the industrialisation process in Britain itself, which had dispossessed peasantry, enclosed common lands, forced people into the urban areas you know, of, of, of Britain as fodder for the as fodder for the factories and for the, for the newly industrialising British economy. And, and enforcing a system of capitalist property relations you know, and, 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 and enforcing a system of social stability in the midst of the sort of um, the, the misery that existed in these, in these towns and, and, and country areas is what you know, led to the bulging prisons you know, that you had actually in the, in the city of London. And it needed an outlet, it needed a way to resolve it. 70% of the Irish convicts and 60% of the British convicts who, were, who, were, who came on those first few ships were only first-time offenders and had been sent across the world for their, for their offences. And overwhelmingly, it was common uh, petty theft that was the reason why, they were, why they'd been sent so far away. So that's the first thing. They needed to enforce property relations. There'd just been a revolution in the US and, and the newly independent states in the United States were saying that they were refusing to play the role that they historically played of accepting um, convicts from Britain. So they needed somewhere else. They looked to Australia. But probably more important, actually, is a system of imperialism which was developing at this time, which is rivalry between the major colonial powers that existed in Great Britain. They were in, in this, this sort of early stage of carving up the world. They needed access to raw materials, they needed access to markets, and more importantly for the context of Australia, they wanted to be able to cut out any rivals from a little piece of the action in, in, in various parts of the world. And the French, and the, as we said, the French came just a few days after the first fleet here and set up to basically large part of it was to spy and see what the, what the British were doing. But the Dutch had also charted the coast. I mean, there's this myth about Captain Cook discovered Australia. The Dutch were, you know, charting the coast before that. Obviously, Aboriginal people were here for thousands of years. Macassans had been trading with people up in Arnhem Land for many hundreds of years before it. You know, the British were very, very late on the scene, actually, even if you want to discount Aboriginal people in the racist way that they do. But there was still this myth of Captain Cook and discovering Australia. But, the, you know, the, the, all the English powers were looking at the South Pacific and looking at... Um, you know, and, 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 and looking at who was going to own it. So when they marched in and they put the flag in the Union Jack in Sydney Cove, they actually claimed the whole eastern half of the continent of Australia, as well as all the adjacent Pacific islands and New Zealand. With that one act, they said, we proclaim sovereignty over this entire, uh, this entire thing. I mean, obviously, they didn't have it at the time. Consummating that sovereignty would require hundreds of thousands of Aboriginal people literally to die as they actually took you know, control. But, the, but they said at that time, one of the biggest land transfers, the biggest thefts in the history of humanity, planting the flag in Sydney Cove and claiming that, claiming that enormous area of land for the, for, the, for the British Crown. The first shots in that war that was to come with Aboriginal people were actually fired in 1770 when Cook came into Botany Bay. Um, you know, one of the first things that they did as they were coming up on, onto the shore to try and look for fresh water and have a look around, you know, some of the, some of the people from, from the area down there had started shaking spears and this sort of thing. Cook just shot him, you know, shot, you know, shot some of So one of the first things back in, in 1770, those shots said those shots had been fired. Those shots had been fired. When they came back, for the first few months actually, um, of, of their time when they set up in Sydney Cove, you look at it, most of the interaction with the Aboriginal people was reasonably, reasonably friendly. You know, there's some quite, you know, um, touching descriptions of Aboriginal people actually showing people, you know, areas where there's, you know, you can have shelter from the weather or help 
helping people with fishing or, you know, there's some instances of joint fishing expeditions, you know, and these sorts of things. When it starts to sour is when the Aboriginal people... And I think there's a point in that, you know... Settlement itself wasn't the problem. The problem was the imposition of the dictatorship. They didn't want to actually have anything to do with people as humans or ask them how to use this land or, you know, negotiate terms for the land. They just wanted to, wanted to seize it for themselves. And as the local, you know, people started to realise that these people weren't going away, they were pretty nasty, they were very quick to use a gun or, you know, sort of other, other violent methods, then you, started, then you started to get resistance. And throughout 1788, there starts to be an increasing number of skirmishes around the around the fringes sort of of the settlement. Aboriginal people murdered by convicts, convicts killed by Aboriginal people sort of in, in, in retaliation while they're out, you know, killing game on Aboriginal country without asking or gathering, you know, gathering food. And in the middle of 1788, there's a widespread hunger that actually sets in amongst the Aboriginal population around, around Sydney Cove itself. You know, people actually start, you know, there's the reports of, of people actually starting to starve, you know, as they've been locked out of their traditional lands, you know, and stopped, um, you know, and stopped from sort of practising the, practicing the culture that they had for, for so many years. So what's that? Ten minutes. Thanks very much. Yeah. So, the, um, so, so, so this sort of happens. I, I did just want to stop before, you know, before I go on and just, just have a little bit of a description of the, of the Aboriginal social system as it, you know, as it existed at the time, as described by these racists themselves, you know, these racist military sort of people themselves, even at the time. What contention? who didn't have very many nice things to say about Aboriginal people, said in the very, very early stages, was, ve was just struck by the, the equality that existed and the cooperation that existed amongst the people that were here. He said, accepting a little tributary respect which the younger part appeared to pay to the more advanced in years, I could never observe any degree of subordination amongst them. It's very, very important for us as Marxists to understand that Aboriginal society, there is actually no class. There is actually no oppression. I mean, there's a, a division of labour between men and women. It's quite stark at different times, but there's not the oppression of women, certainly in the way that, you know, certainly in the way that exists in class societies as, as, it, as it developed in Europe. There's, you know, there isn't warfare. I mean, people did have, you know, violent interactions with various things in negotiation, but there's no open land warfare, you know, in the way that the, you know, the British who come with their, come with their guns, um, you know, sort of impose a class system and impose oppression and impose violence and warfare actually actually on the you know on the um, on on the on the landmass here and so as, as, the, as this conflict is, is, is developing, you actually start to get then more organised things like raids by Aboriginal people on the fishing parties, you know, to actually, you know, they're sitting there starving and these people are hauling in like thousands of Australian salmon and stuff in their, in the, in their big nets. People start raiding, killing fishermen, trying to steal fish, trying to, trying to, trying to survive in that way. There's one, you know, it's, it's, it's suppressed and censored, the level to which uh, convicts are actually being killed by, by Aboriginal fighters at this time. But there's one um, testimony from an anonymous female convict in 1788 who writes, they do us all the injury they can. I don't know how many people have been killed. In October, Collins, who's a, who's a military officer, he writes, it's absolutely necessary, it's become absolutely necessary to compel the natives to keep at a greater distance from the settlement. You know, so they start actually using guns to drive people you know, away, away from the settlement. In, in November, there's a very violent attack on a fishing party. People die. And Tench describes, he says, there's an unabated animosity that then prevails between 
between the Eora and the, and the settlement. Um, and then probably most significant, in November, at the Brickfields, which is down near Central Station or perhaps a, little, you know, perhaps a little bit to the east down there, they're starting to excavate clay out of the ground to make bricks. And you know, there's different interpretations of what it is exactly. Perhaps they're desecrating an important site. You know, they're actually destroy, you know, destroying, the, you know, destroying the land. You know, some of the military officers at that stage think that this is a... a, a the Aboriginal people are trying to check their encroachment. But there's a demo. You know, they say some of the um, numbers vary from 200 to actually up to 2,000 of warriors armed with spears who come out, shake their spears and tell people to, to get away from the brick, field, to get away from the brick fields. And, and at this point, the military leaders actually really start to worry. They start to worry about the ten, how tenable the settlement may even be. They haven't been able to establish agricultural settlement and, and, and grazing settlement. When they're trying to push out beyond the bounds of Sydney Cove, which they find is quite sandy, they're met with, they're met with resistance. People have got scurvy in a really serious way. People start dying. 11 Marines actually had died by the end of 1788, a lot of it from the sickness and the, and the malnutrition and, things, and the things that go along with it. And they, had, they actually only had about 200 Marines. Right, so these guys have just had this show of force of armed warriors with spears of potentially up to 1,000, 2,000 people. They've only got 2,000 marine, 200, sorry, marines. They're trying to hold down the little colony. They're trying to hold down a little farm they tried to set up at, at Balmain. And they really want to set up at Parramatta and get to the really rich grazing farming land at Parramatta to start being able to provide food for themselves. But there's a huge argument amongst the military leadership about whether they can even hold Parramatta. What Content says, we can't do it. We don't have the military force to actually go out there and establish at Parramatta. But Philip presses on. He says, we must. We must be able to feed ourselves. The first thing they do at Parramatta is establish a fort. They, you know, they set up, they send out the Marines, establish a fort, and they start trying to farm, and they're met with, they're met with um, resistance immediately. Philip's writing back to Britain, saying, he says at that time, please dispatch an extra 600 soldiers who were needed in order for us to start cultivating the land. Um, but as I said, it becomes, it, becomes, uh, it becomes a fairly urgent question. They also have a very severe shortage of ammunition at this time. They hadn't brought enough ammunition with them, you know, to be able to, to maintain the Marines. You know, there's, there's a whole story there that I won't go into. But they're, but they're worried. You read it, they're worried. There's a lot of pessimism about the actual colony's ability to survive sort of in its, in, 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 in its current form. And... Um, uh, yeah, so sorry, I'll just, just find myself here. So yeah, after the, after the confrontation at the Brickworks, Phillips, Philip decides on a plan of how we're going to, of what we're going to do here. He said, he knows there's a fundamental contradiction between the Aboriginal people who are in the area and, and, and the colony that's trying to set up, and he wants to bring that contradiction to a head and resolve it on the terms of the, and resolve it on the terms of the colony. Tench writes, tired of the state of petty warfare and endless uncertainty, the governor at length determined to adopt a decisive measure by capturing some of them and retaining them by force. Tench explains that potentially this could, kidnapping could provoke an attack. So it'll draw out. We can see in full force how much firepower these guys got. We can deal with it. And as, 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 as Tench said at the time, we should know the worst and provide accordingly, which is a nice euphemism, setting a nice tone for euphemisms that would continue throughout colonisation for killing very large numbers of Aboriginal people. We'll provide accordingly. If no attack came, however... They could, a, new attack, a new tactic might come into play. This was Tench's other idea. The captive could be forced to communicate and to come to understand that British civilization was superior to his own and then be sent out to convince, the, convince, his, um, 
you know, other people to stop the attacks and accept the colony and accept the superiority of the, of, of the colony. And I think in this act by Philip, you can see two of the main strategies that the settler state has, dealt, has used to deal with the Aboriginal problem, two of the main strategies. One is open warfare, open genocide. Let's just kill them, force them off the land, you know, drive, drive them out. The next one is assimilation, you know. Can we find some people who will accept the social structure, which accompany, you know, essentially achieves the same aim? The resistance stops. People become accepting of the, you know, accepting of the of, of the settler society and, and assimilate and assimilate into it. Um, so marines are sent off down the harbour. They grab. They grab. They try to grab quite a large number of people. There's a big fight, and they're only able to get one, one fella called Arabanu at that time, who, when he saw himself irretrievably... This is Tench. When he saw himself irretrievably departed from his countrymen, he set up the most piercing and lamentable cry of distress. So Arabanu's put on a long leash. He's plied with alcohol. He's drunk, you know, you know from, from very early on. They're, they're, they're feeding him alcohol. He has his beard cut. He has his hair cut. He's dressed in fine English clothes. He pick, very quickly picks up a few uh, words of English. And, you know, he's kept for, you know, a few, a few weeks. And then he's taken back to the clan. And this is supposed to be the moment where he explains to the clan how well he's being treated, how good these fellas are, stop your fighting, let's all come in and, and, you know, and, and we can all be friends. But when, he, but when he's on the boat and he lifts up his leg and he shows that he's actually got shackles on his leg, his countrymen leave and they, they never have intercourse again with Arabanu. Arabanu's not, not useful to them anymore as a, as, as a mediator and negotiator. So the colony's still under enormous pressure. They haven't had any sort of decisive battle to show the force of the Eora. They haven't been able to assimilate Arabanu to the point where they, can, where they can get what they want from him. And it's this time that the smallpox epidemic actually hits Sydney, at this crucial time when, the, when, you, when, when you've got, when you've got the... You know, think, things are really in the balance. The smallpox epidemic hits Sydney. And there's a very compelling case. There's a, there's a researcher called Christopher Warren, you know, who actually argues that clearly that it was actually introduced purposefully by... By the officers, you know, at this at this moment. As I said, they're very worried. They're in an argument with Philip about what they can actually do in terms of establishing establishing the, the settlement out at Parramatta. They have smallpox on the ship. There's little, you know, smallpox scabs sitting in vials on the ship. The surgeons, the military surgeons, know how to deploy smallpox as a weapon of war. They know how to do it from, from, from Native America. We don't have any direction from Philip or anything like this to deploy the smallpox. But right at this crucial military moment, people start dying in very big numbers. And not from around the settlement. There's no, no record of anyone in the settlement, any white person in the settlement, having smallpox. It wasn't passed from the settlers onto the people. It must have been introduced in some way. I suppose the question is how. But the theory is, if you look at where the smallpox actually hit and where people started dying, that they dropped it across the harbour, they dropped it down in Botany Bay, and the thing just goes mental and wipes out about half of the population of the Sydney Basin very, very, very quickly. And at that moment, there's a turnaround. There's a turnaround in the fortunes. People, people are decimated. And just to read a little bit of what this actually means. Hunter, who's writing at the time, he wrote, it was truly shocking to go around the coves of this harbour which were formerly so frequented by the natives where in the caves of the rocks which used to shelter whole families in bad weather were now to be seen men, women and children lying dead. I mean there's plenty of testimony like this, it's really horrible. Um, there's some oral history from within the Eora traditions, a man uh, Dennis Foley, um, who, who's actually written about some of the history of his people, writing 
writing, you know, about the, an oral history story about leaving blankets on the shore and people coming up to the blankets and picking up the blankets. And obviously we'll never know for sure, but very, very convenient time for a disease to actually decimate a people who, who are putting up quite an, effective, quite an effective resistance. By the middle of 1789, there's been a discernible change around in the military fortunes. Philip's spirits have lifted. They've set up at Parramatta quite seriously. They've started to actually do some, some, some farming out there. And that's at this point too, after the decimation of people that are around, that you actually start to see Aboriginal people coming in, if you like, into the city of Sydney. Benelong, at this time, the famous sort of story of Benelong, who was like the model, you know, black that, you know, assimilated and put on the English clothes and this sort of thing. It's late in, it's late in, 18, in 1789 that Benelong, you know, sort of um, is first captured, runs away a few times and eventually, you know, in some way, you know plays this negotiating role with some of the Eora that are around and he's eventually taken over to Britain. I mean, it's a tragic story. This guy dies in 1813, lampooned in the press, if you read their, you know, sort of obituaries that they wrote about him, that by the last, you know, five or ten years of his life, he was just wandering drunk around Sydney and, you know, abusing people. And, you know, it's a ter terribly sort of sad story that will happen, what, what, what happened to Benelong. But there are some people whose traditional way of life has been smashed around Sydney itself who, 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 start, who actually start living in the, you know, who start living in the city. Um, we'll go on about some of that. There's some quite interesting dynamics in, in the city itself. But I'd also, I also just wanted to make a quick point that it's at this point from 1790, 1791, that you actually get a lot of the journals that are written at that time starting to make some commentary on traditional Aboriginal practices, you know, and what they're commenting on is looking at people who have just been smashed. You know, as I said, half the population, three-quarters of the population wiped out by smallpox, the violence of the, of the frontier war or whatever, a society in very, very deep trauma. But what content should written earlier about... There's not a sign of subord you know, subordination amongst them or whatever you say. There's not a sign of social inequality. He writes in 1971, Indeed, the women are treated in all respects with savage barbarity. When an Indian is provoked by a woman, he either spears her or knocks her down on the spot. On this occasion, he always strikes her in the head, using indiscriminately a hatchet, blah, 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 going on to describe these barbaric practices towards women. Never mind that they're flogging convict women at the time. Never mind that Aboriginal women are being systematically attacked and raped by the people that are, you know actually they're in the settlement, you know, never mind the fact that, you know, these people are in total trauma from being destroyed, no, 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 it's their barbaric practices that are leading to this violence, and disgracefully, this, these observations have been used and are used now by academics to walk around and talk about the violence of pre-Aboriginal culture, and how the violence against women that we see, you know, today from all the deprivations that Aboriginal people are forced to suffer, this has a chain back to, you know, pre-Aboriginal society and blah, 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 completely unreconstructed garbage, these people were essentially prisoners of war in the middle of city, as Sydney sort of at, at the time. Um, so I, I think that that's an important, sort of an important point to make. Um, I probably don't have too much time to go over the, you know, some of the details, but it's, it's another story again then about the war that restarts. You get, you know, like after the smallpox epidemic, after about 12 months, 18 months, there's a real lull sort of in the fighting and in the resistance, but it picks up again and, and Pemulwuy first comes onto the scene. Um, he first comes onto the scene actually by killing, killing this bastard of a bloke called McIntyre who'd set up a trading post down around Botany Bay and actually learnt to speak some of the local language and was, you know, ripping off essentially, you know, a lot, a lot 
lot of the people there and was very abusive, plenty of allegations of rape and other things like this. He spit and killed by Pemulwuy uh, down, at, down at Botany Bay. And in retaliation, uh, Watkin Tench is ordered to lead a party to march down. They march straight down here, straight where in front of us now on this path that is now King Street, all the way down, you know, with 50 people with hatchets and head bags. They were supposed to decapitate 10 people and bring their heads back to, bring their head, heads, heads back to the colony. That was the orders that were given. Actually, they couldn't find anyone. <laughs> they got all the way down there. People were too quick for them. They were, you know, had moved and this sort of thing. They, they, they potentially shot one person sort of on that, on that voyage, but they certainly didn't get close enough to cut off heads as, as, as Philip wanted. Um, but the war, had, the, war, the war then really started to pick up. Yeah. So the, the point I just wanted to make about, about the war as it, as it then played out is that all on that Cumberland Plain, that whole area from, from Parramatta, Toon Gabby, out to Blacktown, you know, even down to the Georges River from there. This whole area was a huge grazing land. And as I said, that grazing land was the result of Aboriginal land management practices and fire burning over a very long period of time. But for these settlers, they come in and they go, oh my God, you beauty, look at all this nice clear land. We can grow whatever we want. We can run sheep. And they start to set up these, these farms. And I think pro- probably one of the, 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 significant, the significant thing oh, is worth saying, don't have time to go into it here, they resisted every step of the way, right? Any time they try and establish a, a new farm, that the, 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 the farmers are all armed, armed by the state. They need a guard of three, you know, three marines for every sort of new farm that they're trying to set up. Fire starts to become used actually as a weapon to burn the cornfields, to burn the huts, to fight. You know, all through the 1790s, you have this war out along the Cumberland Plain, this sort of on-again, off-again sort of conflict, and a war up into the Hawkesbury area, all, all, all along the, all along, all along the um, the flats, the river flats there, you know, sort sort of at the time. But I think probably one of the interesting things for me is is some of the class question is the way that the convicts are actually used in this situation, because the convicts themselves is is, is a real problem for the is a real problem for the authorities as well. You've got convicts that are defecting through the 1790s. There's a fair number of them actually that go and you can say camp with Aboriginal people and sometimes participate in the attacks. There's there's a couple of them that, that end up getting outlawed along with Pemulwuy for fighting with Pemulwuy. You know, in, in, in 1801, a couple of uh, a couple of Irish convicts actually that had, that had absconded. But the but the but the convicts, as a bit of a promise to keep them sweet and try and keep them within the colonial society, there's this promise that when when you're free, you're going to get your little plot of land, right? When we give you freedom, you're going to get your little plot of land. So a lot of the small farms all out along the Cumberland Plain are actually convicts that have become free, that are set up, and they have to face the fire, right? They're the ones who die. They're the ones who do the killing, you know, alongside the military forces that come in to support them. But what ends up happening, of course, is most of them go bust and are bought out by the bigger, you know, the bigger farmers, are bought out by the likes of, you know... Um, MacArthur, you know, for example, who gets about 4,000 acres, you know, not from government grants, but from buying out convicts, you know, little ex-convict settlements that had tried to set up that had failed. The same is true, you know, sort of up in, up in the Hawkesbury. So this promise that's sort of held out to keep some convicts within the tent of colonial society, that you can have a chance in Australia, you can have your little patch of land, you can have your little bit of freedom, you know, at the end of the day, they're pauperised, they're poor, and they enter the ranks of the, the sort of working class that starts to emerge, you know, sort of in Australia, you know, from the, you know, there's convicts that are forced to work, you know, right into the, to the 19th century, forced to work for the big landowners, but also then the, uh, also then the, you know, like a, a working class that, that, that sort of established, you know, that, that started, starts to get established um, in Australia. Okay. Um, 
And I did, I did just want to just want to finish just because it's something that we're doing some camp, we're doing some campaigning on now, and it's something that, that we can talk about. And is that just on this this dual function as I've been talking, dual dual um, strategy that the colonial state has. And on the one hand, full frontal assault to try and break your connection to the land and disperse you, and on the other hand, setting up these institutions to try and assimilate you. So all through the 1790s, I'll just read this quote from Grace Carson's book on on the colony. She said, settlers also habitually took Aboriginal children during raids after the flight of the parents. These parents came to the farmhouses later with earnest entreaties for the return of their children, but the settlers ignored them. This had happened in Sydney Harbour from at least September 1788, and at Gabby and Parramatta as well. Often the whites later said that the children were just orphans who they had rescued from the bush. The infants were usually about two or three, old enough to survive without their mothers, but considered young enough to be successfully brought up in white society. Some of the white couples seemed to have been childless themselves. Others were perhaps keen on having an exotic curiosity in their homes. The children, suitably suitably Europeanised, would provide useful labour when they grew up too. Okay, so you've got a stolen generation from 1788 and the same paternalistic bullshit about we're going to save them you know, from the depravities of their thing, was present then as it's present now. It gets formalised. These, these things become formalised in the institutions of the state, these strategies, as the state develops in Australia. The first police force in Australia is in the 1820s. They set up the Mounted Police. After a war with the Wiradjuri that happened after Bathurst, they actually set up, you know, a police force in the way it's no longer just the, you know, the military forces and things that are being used. It's against the unruly convicts and it's against the black resistance that you actually get the, you know, the, 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 the beginnings of a police force in Australia. And they set up a native institution at Parramatta in 1816 for Aboriginal kids that are captured as prisoners of war as a place where they'll be assimilated, where they'll be taught and blah, blah, blah. And I think today, you know, when we've got a situation where you've got, again, full frontal assaults on land rights going on, you know, in most states in Australia now, you've got racist state governments that are moving, trying to break Aboriginal land rights that have been won, you know, through the 1970s and 1980s. They're moving against the Northern Territory Land Rights Act again. That aspect is still there. Break the connection to land. Break the control of land. At the same time as you've got an explosion in the apparatus of assimilation, you know, there's 15,000 Aboriginal children that are now living in this so-called out-of-home care system. That's 1,000 more than there were last year, the new figures that came out. We've had an explosion in removal of Aboriginal children over you know over the last few years you know the aboriginal problem has not gone away and it hasn't gone away because the people have refused to go they've resisted every single step of the way it continues to be a thorn in the side of the state and it continues to be a fundamental you know feature you know of australian capitalism is how do we deal with the fact that we've set up on stolen land you know and 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 we have to deal you know with the social reality of an aboriginal population that never never ceded you know a square inch a square inch of that land thank you